Beloved congregation of the Lord, please turn your Bibles once more to Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and verse 68. Psalm 119, verse 68. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Well, the Psalm 119 is well known as the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Certainly the longest of the Psalms. And it is a Psalm that especially sets forth the priority and in the importance of the law of God in the life of the believer. Indeed, as we sing from another psalm that is composed in our Psalter, Oh, how I love thy law, O Lord. It is my meditation all the day. The law of God is something which informs every dimension of our Christian experience. And as we trace out the experience of this child of God throughout all these many verses, you see that the law of God is the occasion of his humbling himself under the great weight of his sin. It is that which drives him unto the mercy of God and the promises of his grace. And it is that which directs his gratitude unto the praise of that grace. In the course of this uh, lengthy psalm, which is arranged according to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet for easy memorization. In the course of that, we come to see also what the character of a true child of God's prayers are to be. These are words spoken unto God, captivated by his character. And so, seeing God in his glory by faith, there is these words that come forth. Here in verse 68 in particular, it is the goodness of God that is spoken of. Thou art good, he says, and doest good. A great way to begin any form of prayer when we feel cold and sluggish in our words where we do not know where to fix our thoughts if we are just a bundle of confusion as we close our eyes and seek communion with the Lord how fitting it is to begin with words that are utterly true you are good the goodness of God listen to what the church father Augustine had to say about the goodness of God. Very profound words here. Because God is good and made all good things, and he who made them is much better than these things he made, you will not find anything better to say of him than the Lord is good. If that is, you understand that he is properly good, the good by which everything else 
is good. I think it's probably impossible, even in eternity future, to plumb the depths of the riches of the goodness of God. Simple words, the Lord is good. And yet the understanding of those simple words can never be fully exhausted. With the Lord's help, I simply want to unfold this uh, doctrine of the goodness of God. Consider our good God, our good God, with three thoughts, beheld, received, imitated. Beheld, received, imitated. Why do we begin by saying that we uh, behold God, that we are to behold this God of supreme goodness? Will someone say, well, well, surely we are to remember those words of the Apostle Paul, that he dwells in unapproachable light and no man has or can see him. Maybe even we think of that man, Moses, most holy of all and godly of all among the saints of the Old Testament. And even he, when he desired to behold his glory, he had to but behold his back parts as the Lord passed before him as he hid there in the cleft of the rock. And as the, the Lord passed before him, Those glorious attributes were set forth. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, abundant in goodness and truth. And even he but beheld him as it were from the back part and not not as we may like. There's a famous story among the Westminster divines, those great theologians who put together the Westminster Confession and larger and shorter catechisms. And as they were writing their catechism, they they came to this difficulty. How are we going to answer this question, what is God? What is God? And they were stumped. How can we hope to capture that in but a definition? And so one of those godly men, he, he simply began to pray that the Lord would help them. And he began with these words, O God, who is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Well, I began to pray in that way. And then they said, well, that's exactly the definition we need. And, and they took that as a remarkable providence that the Lord gave them then. A spirit infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The goodness of God, we behold it not with the eye of the body, but with the eye of faith. We are to set our minds upon this glorious perfection of God, His goodness. Isn't it the case that in a world that is growing increasingly dark, increasingly perverse, increasingly rebellious. But if we fill our minds just with the garbage of this world and, and pour contempt upon it, then we are missing 
missing that most important means whereby God fills us with his blessedness, and that is that we fix ourselves upon this reality that the Lord is good. But you remember what Augustine said. He is that goodness itself from which all other things are good. How is it that we can ascend up and even grasp a small bit of the reality that the Lord is good? Well, if we know that this world is created by him, and for him and to him that indeed reveals something of his perfections, however imperfectly, then the proper way, perhaps by way of teaching, is to begin with those things that we recognize as good and and see how they relate unto this one who is goodness itself. The great theologians of our history, they spoke of goodness in different respects. They would speak of, for example, honorable goodness, the goodness of honor. Surely, those of you who know what it is to have a godly parent or a grandparent who, through the passage of age and through wisdom and life experience, just Being in their presence fills you with something of that awe and respect. This is one who is worthy of honor. We're losing that, aren't we? The the respect for our elders in society. And yet, we know in principle what it is to honor one who is worthy of honor. And where we would take that principle, someone who has a quality or an attribute that makes them worthy of respect, we can then translate that unto the one who is supremely worthy. Think of that great heavenly throne room which the Apostle John records in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, where the 20 and 4 angels... Elders, rather, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You, For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Here is one who is worthy of supreme honor. And so we call him good. Or you think of of the goodness of being useful, what our fathers called useful goodness. It is, for example, you would go to an apple orchard and you would go to a tree and that you would see there's this luscious, perfectly ripe, crisp, apple right there on the tree you reach out and you take that apple and you eat it you 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 take that which was created for nourishment for food and you say that is a good apple it's not rotten it's not uh, become disease there's no worms or anything in it no it's it's good it it brings about that purpose for which it was created nourishment for the creature and so you can multiply the cases you think of a good hammer for pounding in nails that is not broken but suited to its use 
multiply the, the cases. This is good if it fulfills that for which it exists. And even in a dim way, often God will condescend to speak about himself in this way, comparing himself to something in the creaturely order, in order that our thoughts would ascend unto the one who has all this perfection in himself. And so he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, thy exceeding great reward. Does a shield provide protection? Does it provide you security? Myself much more so. Do the, the riches and the benefits of this world count themselves as rewards? Well, myself much more so. Think of the words of Moses in his great song at the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 3. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. A rock. Strong, secure, seemingly unchanging. A place that you can build a solid structure upon. Something that will support your weight, even protect you from, uh, from danger. And so how much more the Lord, the true rock, the rock of rocks, even that one who is solid and faithful and unchanging and infinite in his greatness. He is good. He is useful, and yet even the word seems impious, for he is not brought unto some use subordinated over himself. But all things find their use and purpose in him. For from him and to him and for him are all things. The self-existent one, Jehovah, I am that I am. And so his purpose, if we dare even utter the word, is his own glory. He exists for himself, supreme goodness. Fathers also spoke of the goodness of delight, delightful goodness. Where something is truly good, is it not bring forth that delight from the heart and soul? You think of a, a husband and, and wife, newly brought together in the bond of marriage. And Lord, the Lord brings them together, and there is a delight in the other. There is an infatuation. They speak of the other when they're absent. They're consumed with thoughts of the other. Of the other. And, and where they are present together in that joyful union, there is great joy and delight. Oh, this but a pale shadow of, of the goodness of God. Psalm 16 speaks well where the... Where the Psalmist writes in verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
I'm always struck also by that Psalm 4, where it compares the lot of the one who has true delight in God with those who are outside the true knowledge of God. He says in Psalm 4, verse 6 and 7, There be many that say, Who will show us any good, any good at all? The world is harsh, the world is barren of goodness. So much pain and suffering and cruelty. Who will show us any good? Anything good, it just seems to fade away and vanish. Who will show us true goodness? And then the psalmist prays, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Look upon us with your face. Draw close to us as a true friend. Verse 7 of Psalm 4, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. Was there joy in prosperity of money and wealth and food and family and friends and all these things? No greater joy is than that found with true communion with God, the one who is supremely lovely, supremely worthy, supremely delightful. How else can the psalmist praise with those words that we began the service with in Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing that true delight in God as the one who is supremely delightful. But to return to that thought, that we never draw an absolute equivalence with any of these things, reasoning from the creation to the creator. Yes, it does lift up our thoughts to the one who has all these things in himself, but never is there an equivalence. We spoke recently of that rich young ruler who came before the Lord Jesus Christ. Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. And how is it that Jesus responds to him? Verse 17. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Jesus says the true God-man lifts him up beyond this mere flattery of words of who this man thought was just a fellow human being and brings his thoughts to this. There is one who is supremely good and he alone is worthy of the name good. In his being, he is good, infinitely so, eternally so. In his persons, he is good. The good Father, eternally begetting His Son as the very likeness of the Father's glory. And in that eternal bond of love between the Father and the Son, they each breathe forth and proceeding from them is the Holy Spirit, as it were, the bond of love between the God who begets and the God who is begotten and the God who proceeds from both, and indeed all but three persons of the one undivided Godhead. Jesus, the Son of God, as the one who reveals the triune God unto us. God, you see, is good, 
The Lord is good and he is a God of infinite goodness. Where we see something of the character of God set forth from the Holy Scriptures, does it not cause us to mourn and grieve how we have set our hearts so much upon those things that are unworthy? Unworthy of our love, our desire, our delight in the way that we ought to be seeking after the one thing that is needful, even God himself as our reward, our inheritance. Does it not teach us how we have become pitiful creatures by nature? Where once we walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day, enjoying fellowship with him in our unfallen state because our, our parents Adam and Eve have fallen, we are like blind bats in the midst of a glorious and beautiful environment, but utterly cut off from the beauty that is all around us. The beauty of, of the created order, it brings us unto the one who is supremely good. And every act of God is to bring us unto him. We turn in the second consideration to what the psalmist says there. Not only thou art good, but it also says, and doest good, and doest good. In our Belgic Confession article, one, we confess that God is the overflowing fountain of all good. Yes, we can say that God is goodness in himself. He is this perfection of goodness, supremely worthy of honor, supremely worthy of delight, the one from whom all purpose comes. But we also ought to give specific consideration to the ways in which we receive his goodness through his various good acts. His activity and the displays of his power and wisdom, these are the ways in which we receive the goodness of God. He, as the fountain, overflows to communicate his goodness unto his creatures, even his fallen creation. Of course, we're reminded that even after the fall and the plunge into sin, yet there is so many remnants of God's goodness that come to all of humanity. Go back to the original creation week. And there is God, he says, that there be light, that there be stars, that there be animals going through each one of these days all until the climax when human beings are created as the crown of his creation. And after every day, there are the words, the Lord saw it, and it was good. It was good. And though there is now death, know that though there is now evil and wickedness in this world, yet we cannot deny that his goodness shines forth wherever we would care to set our gaze. He provides food for the birds of the air. He causes rain to fall upon the just and the unjust alike. Even the mere fact of existence, the fact that you exist, should bring you to stop and wonder. 
as the Apostle Paul said in his speech before the Areopagus in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. The Lord of all creation, the Lord of all history, he sustains everything through the word of his power. And though all evil he opposes and all evil he will set right, Yet everything that we experience by way of goodness in this world, it points unto his supreme perfection. But of course, we think further than that. Those things may even be revealed in some manner to the unbeliever without any special revelation. The goodness of God, even some of the philosophers spoke about. But where we come to the scriptures and it sets forth those particular ways in which God has worked, we know that there are so many greater testimonies. I think, for example, of how he is the Lord of sovereign predestination. Predestinating whatsoever comes to pass for his own eternal glory, particularly in his in his setting apart a people unto salvation. Wasn't that what the psalmist spoke about in Psalm 100? Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That people of God, the church, set apart from all other peoples of the world. And where they would explain their existence as the sheep under the good shepherd, they would not ascribe it unto their greater worthiness, their greater intelligence. They're coming from this or that background. No, it is God who has made us his people. And where did he make us? Was it at this time or that time that he purposed to do so? No, it stretches back and back before this world existed, before time even itself existed. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we read, According as he hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, in love setting apart a people who would be separated from the world unto holiness, unto salvation in Christ. And so we say that he is sovereign in this, choosing a people to inherit the blessings of salvation and also justly passing over others in their sin and condemnation. Romans 9, verse 18. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. See, this is not opposed to his goodness, but an expression of it. He indeed has mercy on some to the praise of his grace, and he hardens others to the praise of his justice. Indeed, God reveals his goodness in both. I remember I was... Uh, while in seminary, talking to a young man from a Reformed background. And and he was on the brink of abandoning the faith. And I just met him at that uh, late night studying in the coffee shop. He was telling me his story, and he said, I couldn't 
couldn't accept that at all, that God would create people and then have them perish in the eternal fires of hell. I could, could never accept that. And I put to him that the problem lies not with God, my friend. The problem is that you have such small thoughts of sin and such small thoughts of the greatness of God and his self-glorification. Those words that we read from the prophecy of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, God is jealous and the God and, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he res- reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Why is it that hell exists? Because God is good. Why is it that sin must be punished? Because God is good. Why is it that all things will ultimately end in a good and a wise purpose? Because it all has this, to unveil the character of God, his mercy towards the elect and his justice towards the reprobate. Focusing on the same thought from another angle, this goodness of God, how much is it experienced by the Lord's people in his covenant of grace, wherein he is set forth as the Lord of salvation? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, Wherefore also we pray always for you, Paul writes, that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sending of a mediator, this one who would reconcile a sinful people unto a good God, which so gloriously sets forth the goodness of God, not in a way that contradicts or overrides his holiness and hatred of sin. Indeed, Nahum, he spoke truly when he said that he would not at all acquit the wicked but rather he finds a way to be both just and the justifier, visiting his wrath upon sin in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the punishment that we deserved in order that we would receive life and life abundant, being acquitted of all of our sins and counted righteous in him. God does not overlook sin, but he deals with it. He does not set aside his law, but fulfills it. And all the while finding a way to show forth his mercy towards the undeserving, showing forth that which his long suffering towards sin has always tended towards, the restoration of humanity in his elect church. You read those words in Psalm 100, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him 
and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. How terrible would it be if our salvation was grounded upon anything other than the goodness of God. The unchanging God who is without the least change, without any shadow of turning. The great and eternal I am is good. And where he is good, his mercy in the gospel is everlasting. His truthfulness and faithfulness will never be shaken. Unto a thousand generations, unto the very end of history, God's word will hold firm. And it will accomplish all his good pleasure. Not one will be lost for whom Christ died. But they shall be all brought into the fellowship of his his people. One of the great pre-reformers who John Calvin and, um, and Martin Luther particularly loved was a preacher by the name of Bernard of Clairvaux. And this is what he said about the goodness of God. Quote, just as there is no moment in which we do not enjoy the goodness of, of him, thus there should not be one moment in which we do not have him present in our memory. That's really a convicting thought, isn't it? God being altogether good as the Lord of creation as the Lord of predestination grace, as the Lord of salvation in the covenant of grace. He is altogether good. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And where we have partaken of that goodness and been called unto the fellowship of his Son, then every moment should be filled with this thought that everything good owes unto him. And everything good is to lead us by the hand unto a greater awareness of he who is goodness himself. And so we come to this third thought. Not only our good God beheld and received, but also imitated. Imitated. He writes in the psalmist does in verse 68, Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Teach me thy statutes. Here is how it ought to be where we become acquainted with the goodness of God. We want to, yes, receive of his goodness in the gospel, to receive that sure promise of the forgiveness of sins through and in the mediator, Jesus Christ. But where we have beheld his, his goodness and received his goodness, we also desire to be imitators of it to be transformed through the renewing of our mind and renewed in the image of God after the likeness of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything about the goodness of God should lead us to this place. Teach me thy statutes. Teach me, Lord, 
I do not have the wisdom that I need in order to even know what is good. I must go to your word. That place in which, yes, the promises are set forth of salvation in Christ, but also that law of God which is our path of instruction and our guide to gratitude where we partake of his blessedness and goodness. Teach me thy statutes. Make me, O Lord, to be conformed unto the character of this good God. You know, there's that awesome rebuke that is given in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul writes, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The goodness of God is to lead you to repentance. Where you see how good he is, there is to be a turning away from the foulness of this world unto him who is the the very sum of all purity, righteousness, and holiness. His law is to be sweet unto us. Even as we do feel the sting of the condemnation which our sins deserve in our conscience, there is yet a desire and a yearning that we would be conformed unto the pattern of that law, that we would indeed show forth the true character of God and bring him glory in Jesus Christ. We think of those words that Nahum spoke in his prophecy, who can stand before his indignation And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Where once we see the great holiness and wrath of God against sin, it can indeed drive us to despair. And yet where we would see that next word that is spoken in verse 7, we see how it is possible that we may dwell with this consuming fire. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Oh, the Lord would have you see that if you are in a day of trouble, languishing in your sin, if you are a stranger unto the goodness of God, he would invite you to flee unto his refuge and stronghold the great and mighty tower of his love in Jesus Christ is that which you must trust in. See that he is merciful and long-suffering unto those who would turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That where indeed you are found in him, there will be no condemnation for you, but indeed a sure refuge from the wrath to come. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, receive of his blessings, and then you may imitate him. Indeed, you must imitate him. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The sight of this good God In his goodness, it is that which leads us to cleanse ourselves and to pursue the true likeness of God in godly fear. Oh, have you sought this through his grace? May you do so today.